And for the first part of this series, we're only going to be looking at Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. We'll be there for probably three to four weeks. And then we'll launch out into the rest of the Bible over the back half of this sermon series. Genesis 1-1. I'll read. I'll close the reading of God's word by saying, This is the word of the Lord to which the church responds prayerfully. Speak, Lord, your servants hear. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me just read it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats. Let's pray and get to work. Father, we love that you have spoken to us in the smile on a baby's face. You have revealed to us your grandeur and your wisdom and your power in a sunrise and a sunset in a mountain landscape. But here, Lord, in Genesis 1, we have the beginning of your special revelation of yourself. Here, you proclaim in detail who you are, what you have done. And the story of the Bible gives to us answers to those questions. Why are we here? What is our purpose? What is wrong with the world? And how can this world be fixed and made right? Lord, as we launch into a somewhat technical series, I pray that our church would be a people who love God with their hearts and love God with their souls and love God with all of their minds. Lord, we pray that Taproot Church, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, would be a people who are a people of the book, that we would know our Bibles, that we would read our Bibles to know you and glorify you and to love one another. And so, Lord, today... As we begin this series, I'm asking that you would answer the questions that so many in this room have. Some have been afraid to ask. Why does the Bible seem to so contradict what modern science says? Can the Bible be trusted? Is the Bible full of myths and fabrications of reality? Father, today, I pray that you would begin answering those questions and that these Christians in this room would be stabilized and made strong in the scriptures. And that for those who are here investigating, curious, brought with a friend, wondering, could this be true? Could this be real? Is there a God who loves me? I pray in your merciful grace that you would speak to them and answer their questions and lead them to Jesus of Nazareth on a cross for their sin, resurrected for their victory. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, guys. Well, here's where we're at. Today, we launch into a new series. This series is going to be anywhere between four to eight weeks long. I haven't quite got it mapped out in my head yet. Entitled, The Waters, The Wilderness, and The World to Come. And just so you guys know where this series was birthed out of, I'm currently working on a graduate degree from Western Seminary. And one of my projects was to develop 
a teaching series on something that I needed to deal with deeply and something that I've needed to and have continued to deal with deeply for really the last 18 years of my life in being a theologian and a student of the Bible is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, namely reconciling the stories of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 with what our culture speaks to us about cosmology, creation, the beginning of all things. Because there appears to be an apparent contradiction. But through study and through this particular author that I've come to just deeply respect, this sermon series has been developed to give to you guys some particular positions, some particular ideas that will help bring some resolution to some of the tension. So for this series, as we get into it, let me map out where we're going to be going and why we're doing this. So the first half of this series over the next two to three to maybe four weeks is going to be somewhat technical. I was having a conversation with my wife and Ian yesterday about the American church and how oftentimes these types of studies can be... mm, not really attended well. <laughs> it's like big words get used, big ideas get used. And, and, and for many Christians in, in our culture, it's time to turn it off because we come to church primarily for somebody to help us with our life. And when we start talking about technical things and, and deep layers of theology and big ideas, we can sometimes walk away from those sessions saying, man, what was the point of that? How's that going to help me with my marriage Monday morning? How's that going to help me get along at my job tomorrow? The point being, though, that when we love God, not only with our hearts and souls, but we endeavor to love God with our minds, we will see that understanding these larger ideas, giving ourselves over to learning and thinking, will create in us a Christianity that is both intellectually integrous robust and fruitful for you personally and fruitful for you societally as you launch out into this world to make disciples. So over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the Semitic languages used in the book of Genesis, particularly in chapter one and chapter two. We're going to be talking about how some of the portions of Genesis one have actually been mistranslated. We're going to be talking about how that happened, why that happened. We're going to be talking about what Moses was saying to his original readers, not what we want Moses to say to us as modern scientists. So I trust that all of you, you're all very, very intelligent people are going to get as nerdy and as excited about this as I am. Because this is really going to lay the foundation for us. The next three weeks are going to lay the foundation because Genesis 1, understood in the particular way that I'm going to present it to you, Genesis 1 lays out the rest of the Bible for us as one consistent story. So these next three weeks are very important. Put on your thinking caps, get excited, become super nerds. Just let's get into this. Now, the back half of this series is going to launch us into a study of what we call in theology the meta-narrative of the Bible. Meta-narrative. The Bible is 66 separate books written by 40 different authors spanning three different cultures, touching seven continents. But the Bible, miraculously, supernaturally, is one whole story. 
we tend to read our Bibles segregated and separated from the other sections of the Bible. So the book of Leviticus has no connection to the book of Galatians, has no connection to the gospel of John, has no connection to the book of Revelation. But when read rightly, when understood that the Bible is one consistent story from Genesis to Revelation, we read the Bible and all of its component parts, all of its various separate chapters and books, And genres as one consistent story. And the great discovery in reading the Bible that way is then we become characters in that ongoing story. So, part one, technical nerddom on steroids. It's going to be a blast setting the foundation for the meta-narrative of Scripture. Equipping you, equipping us as a church to read the Bible as one consistent story and find our place in that story. For the rest of our time this morning, I want to give to you Four reasons why we're going to get into this in this way and establish the reasons for even doing a series like this. Why get so nerdy? Why look at the meta narrative? Reason number one this morning. We're going to do a series like this. We're going to dig into the technical aspects of Genesis 1 because of Jesus' mandate to make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, right before Jesus ascended unto heaven. Jesus came and he said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and now here he says, go therefore, or as you're going, as you're living your life, Christians, as you're breathing air, as you're going to work, Jesus's mandate was, as you're going, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here's the key why we're doing a series like this. Go and make disciples, teaching them, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Many of you are new to this church. You're discerning right now prayerfully. Is this going to be my family? As we say here at Taproot Church, you're praying about coming and dying with us. We believe that we're a family that's going to die together. We're going to We're in for the long haul together. You need to understand that Taproot Church exists to make disciples. We exist. The very reason that we do this on Sunday mornings and we gather in missional communities during the week and we have this view of our workplace and our gyms and our pubs and our coffee shops is we exist as a people to bring people to Jesus. Our whole worldview, the way through which we see this world is as missionary people To a lost people who need Jesus and need to be taught about Jesus. And so this is a teaching church. This pulpit is a teaching pulpit. And there will be big ideas and technical words that are used to teach people, you, myself, and others around us who Jesus is. Making disciples of them. A series like this is good in that it will also equip you to teach others. Yes, we want you inviting people to these Sunday gatherings. For those of you that have friends in your circle of influence who are maybe questioning Christianity or maybe they're curious about Christianity, but they have these stumbling blocks of science and the scriptures rolling around in their heads, you should be obviously saying, hey, come to this series. My pastor is going to be teaching a series in the book of Genesis and going through the whole Bible. We're going to be talking about these things. Invite them. But a series like this is also specifically designed to give you the teaching tools. 
So young singles, they're on the, or singles who are not young, and you're on the University of Washington campus, you have those friends that you are mandated by Jesus to make disciples of, and this series should give you some tools to teach them, to lead them, to shepherd them, to guide them. Fathers and mothers in your homes, teaching and shepherding your little children, establishing them in the word. That is one of the mandates that Jesus has given us, and that's why we're doing this series. Reason number two this morning. Reason number two this morning. A series like this will give apologetic tools to you as Christians, and it will also give you apologetic tools for you who are not yet Christians, to understand what the Bible is saying. Here's what First Peter says. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I'm going to take a little time on this point. We live in a culture where science and scriptures have become polarized. Our society says... That spiritual ideas must remain separated from scientific ideas. And the polarization that has come from that separation has created somewhat of a cultural war. You have spiritual people who say there has to be more than just cosmic accident. And you have academic elites who say there's nothing more than just cosmic accident. And in between all of that, you have this spectrum of ideas swirling about, all one apparently in opposition to the other. Because we live in this world, we must understand that there is not a contradiction as Christians. As Christians understand, there is not a contradiction between what the Bible is saying about creation and what our scientific community says about creation. We need to read rightly and understand correctly what science is saying about creation and what scriptures are saying about creation. Now, here's the reality of our situation. Naturalistic evolutionary theory in our current culture cannot be questioned. Now, listen to my words. Very important words, okay? Naturalistic, meaning no God, naturalistic evolutionary theory cannot be questioned in our current culture. In the realm of academia, in the, in the intellectual elite sphere, to embrace the idea or to, to, to hold to the idea that a God was involved in the creative ordering and processes of this earth and humankind, you become a laughingstock. You are mocked, you are scorned, you are, you are not given the opportunity to write for grants because you have this spaghetti monster in the sky that you believe in. And so, culturally speaking, we as Christians sit in a culture where we are not allowed to challenge, we are not allowed to question, we are not allowed to, to, to oppose naturalistic evolutionary theory as the answer to how things came about in this world. Now, on the flip side of the coin, and here's where I'm probably going to offend some of you, and that's okay. I don't do it purposefully. I just know that this is a deeply entrenched reality within Christendom. Over the last probably hundred years of exegesis and exposition of the texts, since modernity took over the church, 
and enlightenment thinking took over the church, men have come to the scriptures and they have said, we must read these texts literally. Now, that's a good thing. We want to read our Bible. And if the Bible says it, we want to believe it. And we want to be able to stand without shame and say, the Bible says it, I believe it, therefore I'm going to do it, right? That's the kind of people we want to be if we're reading the Bible correctly. As much as evolutionary theory, naturalistic evolutionary theory, cannot be questioned in our culture, within Christian culture, there is this whole realm where if you say, you know, I'm not exactly, I'm just not totally sure that what Moses was saying is that God 6,000 years ago created in six literal days everything that exists. Now, even by saying that out loud from this pulpit, there's some feathers getting ruffled. Oh, no, are we going to abandon the Bible? Are we, are we, are we going to start symbolizing and metaphorizing? And what is happening to my church? There is a level where within Christendom, in the name of guarding the Bible, I know where this comes from. Trust me, I'm a theologian. I'm responsible to guard the Bible. For the next generation of Christians. In the name of guarding the Bible and reading the Bible and protecting the Bible from naturalistic evolutionary theory, there has become this almost like other side of the warfare, other side of the camp, where to question if we're reading it rightly becomes something that now you're going to be attacked. You're going to be, you're going to be considered dangerous. You're going to be considered, you're one of them liberals doing away with the truth of the Bible. Many Christians... Today, because of this polarization, we are afraid to proclaim our belief in the Bible. Brothers, sisters, I know in your workplaces, it's a real challenge for you to be Bible-believing Christians. Working in, whether you work in the hard sciences, soft sciences, industry, corporations, business, it doesn't matter. In a secular society like ours, I recognize the fullness of the challenge of walking into an environment and there you stand saying the Bible says. And because of this great warfare, we are oftentimes afraid to be bold and to be uh, invitational and to be to be all about what we're actually all about because we know the great challenges that we're going to face. And I would say as well, this whole notion of questioning six-day creationism for many Christians, has also put us in a position of fearing. Is my Bible true? Like, I'm really wrestling with this. And I'll tell you from my, from my own life, you guys. So from like age 5 to 21, I cut my teeth on Discovery Channel and PBS specials with my dad after dinner. My dad is an agnostic slash atheist. When I went into college initially tried to go through college. I, I just didn't want a desk job. So I thought, you know what? Um, I'll go into geology. That will get me a pair of hiking boots on and I'll be out amongst the rocks. I can't wait to do it. So I majored in geology for my undergraduate work, which I never finished. And you need to understand that from my whole life, I had no semblance of God. And so here I am growing up, understanding that we had evolved from monkey type beings that there was no God involved in that process, that the world was billions and billions of years old. Then, God in His grace, January 1st, 1998, saves me out of a world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I open up the Bible, and Genesis 1 through 3 is talking about six days of literal creation. Some Christians are telling me that that happened 6,000 years ago, even though I have all these studies that I've been embracing since I was born, telling me it's billions of years old. Oh, and by the way, there's also a snake, a talking snake, in a garden. And they eat some sort of fruit that casts the whole world to death and causes the crash and the curse. And, and, 
And I was completely overwhelmed with this as a brand new baby Christian. I was torn. I knew that Jesus Christ had died for my sins and that he was alive and that I was forgiven. And I also knew that I couldn't question what Genesis 1 was saying. Because if I went to somebody and said, are you guys sure that there was a talking snake in the Bible? Because that doesn't make any sense to me. Hey, you be careful. You're drifting towards liberalism. You better be careful. You don't believe the Bible. And, and just, oh my gosh, okay, okay, I won't talk. I won't talk to society because I believe that there's a God. I won't talk to other Christians because you can't question these things. What we must understand as we move on from this point is this. Though mainstream media and academia would have us to believe that naturalistic evolutionary theory is without challenges, this is very dishonest. For those of you that are on your University of Washington campuses, you're in secular schools, you're in secular studies, you have to be honest as a Christian. And a lot of what we see proposed in naturalistic evolutionary theory is proposed as absolute fact, non-negotiable, it's settled, it's done. And, and I'm telling you, not as a scientist, I confess, but as a theologian, it's propaganda. Honest, atheistic, evolutionary theorists and scientists, honest evolutionary theorists will say there are a lot of gaps in our theory. And there are a lot of questions that we don't have any answers to. Every person on this planet is operating by faith. And so you, Christian, are not marginalized and silly and irrational because you have a set of presuppositions and faith that guides your life as you answer questions. Our evolutionary theorists and our evolutionary scientific friends, they also are operating by faith. In many different ways. Now, on the flip side of the coin with this, though there are some theologians who would have us to believe that we're hedging on heresy and we're not reading the Bible literally as we should, in Genesis, there is room for interpretation. There was a young student that was part of Taproot Church for a number of years. He moved away somewhere. And Michael was an anthropology student. And this was killing him. He's up on the University uh, of Washington campus, sitting through his anthropology classes, and then he's coming back to me, and, and he's looking at Genesis 1 through 3, and he's looking at Genesis 11, and he's looking at you know, the, the, the splitting of the nations, and then he's doing his scientific studies, he's doing his empirical studies, and he's saying, Danny, I, I'm losing my faith. I'm going, I'm going nuts. I'm losing everything here. I, I'm, I, I don't know if I can be a Christian and, and hold to this. And I told him, Michael, listen. When it comes to Genesis 1 through 3 or Genesis 1 through 11, you have plenty of room to play there. Christians need to understand where we actually move towards heresy, where we actually move towards denying the reality of the Bible is when we begin to say that Jesus was not a historical figure, that Jesus didn't literally die, that Jesus didn't literally resurrect from the dead, that by placing our faith in his life and his death and his resurrection, we are ushered into a new life. If we lose that, if we lose the literal life of Jesus, death of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, if we lose that, if that just becomes metaphor, if that just becomes myth, we are no longer Christians. We're on a completely different team now. 
If we hold to and are convinced by the evidence and the revelation of Scripture that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, virgin born, lived the life we couldn't live in our place, died our death as our substitute, literally raised in a bodily resurrection from the dead, conquering sin and death, ascended unto the Father in heaven, and we trust Him, we surrender to Him. If we have that as our overarching reality, then we can go to Genesis 1 and we can say, you know what, there's some things here that can be read differently without hedging into a realm of heresy. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Christians in this room and non-Christians in this room, hear me clearly. God has purposefully made certain things unclear, and he is not up there saying, They don't see it. (laughs) If we are confused about eschatology, the end of things, and God has left somewhat cloudy cosmology, the beginning of all things, God is not capricious. He's not up there saying, I'm going to dangle in front of them the necessity to know exactly how the beginnings happened, and then I'm not going to show them how it happened. That would be a cruel father. And my point in saying this is, chill out. If you're wrestling with Genesis 1 and 2, good. That's okay. You don't have to be afraid. You can ask honest questions. You can come to the text and you can ask honest questions and you can wrestle with it and you can doubt and you can be unclear because God has not made it absolutely clear. That moves us now to point number three. Why are we doing this series? And next week we'll get into the series. We're doing this series in the name of humble theology and unity in the church. I told Pastor Jim and and Darren that on the levels of certainty when it comes to Genesis 1 and 2 and the position that I personally hold on Genesis 1 to 2, if 10 was, if my level of certainty was 10, 10 equals shoot me in the head. I believe that this is true. You tell me you're going to shoot me and and if I don't deny this, no, that's a 10, right? One being... eh, I have no clue if that's true or not. When it comes to Genesis 1 through 3, I told Jim and Darren that day I was at about a (laughs) 2. Right now, in this moment, having done a little more reading, a little more praying and how to present this to you guys, the position that I've come to hold at this point in my life, I'm probably about a 4. The point being, it's a very, very low level of certainty. This is not what I'm going to present to you guys, something that, that is not possible and open to change and reinterpretation because God has left how cosmology, how he brought things about unclear. And that level of uncertainty creates a, what I just call theological humility. The reason that we divide one from another is we become prideful and we become certain about things that God has not given us certainty on. And so what I find so wonderful about this reality is that right here in this church, Even on the elder board, Pastor Jim is, at this point, a young earth creationist. And Jim will push back and correct me if I'm wrong. You guys can talk with him. A literal young earth creationist, which the text can easily and most definitely be interpreted that way. I personally am going to present to you guys my own position. And the point being this morning, there should be enough theological humility where there is uncertainty in these certain theological ideas and areas where we can be unified, loving one another, caring for one another, and continuing to pursue our own education. 
which is the other thing that I wanted to tell you guys. Whatever I present to you guys today, because my level of certainty on it is only like a two to four, this is an area where you as Christians, the mandate is on you to go out and do your own research, read your own books, ask your own questions, Google your own websites. You guys do the hard work of making disciples by teaching and training yourselves so that you can have solid answers and answer the questions that other people are going to have. In this church, uh, a couple people that I want to point you to because I, I need to be very clear about where we're about to go. As I get ready to present this view to you guys, I am presenting this view to you guys as a theologian, not a scientist. Full disclosure, uh, I had some high school chemistry and some biology uh, I caught stuff on fire, and that was about the extent of my chemistry and my bio. I am not an empirical scientist. Uh, I dropped out of my geology courses with a 1.7 GPA, so that tells you how well I was doing in school. I am presenting these views to you as a theologian, somebody who comes to the scriptures, studies the scriptures, is responsible to understand the scriptures to the best of my ability through various means... I'm not presenting this to you as a scientist. For those of you in this room that are really wrestling with this question, you want to talk to somebody that is scientifically trained, uh, there's two guys that I want to point you to. Uh, one of our deacons, Tom Friedel, and one of our pastors, Jim Cobb. These men are highly educated. They have worked in empirical science their whole lives. Um, and they are able to explain why whenever the whole world it seems the whole cultural world of science in our society says, look, evolutionary theory, old earth, that's the only way you can talk to two men. And they're no dum-dums. Trust me. They are brilliant, gifted men. You can sit down with them and you can say, Pastor Jim, Deacon Tom, hey, look, Pastor Danny said that you hold these positions. How come you would challenge what almost all of the scientific community is saying? And they can give you good, honest reasons, very persuasive reasons, reasons that persuade me continually. Tom Friedel in particular is just a wealth of books and information and videos and more books. And Tom has been just throwing me books for about three years now. And so sit down and talk with these men, sit down and understand that there are positions that you can hold that are intellectually integrous. You're not going to have to abandon your ideas about heaven and earth. You're not going to have to Say the earth is flat and we believe it because the Bible says the earth is flat. You don't have to do that. But here's the deal, guys. You do have to work. Loving God with all of your mind requires a little bit of reading and a little bit of thinking and a little bit of due diligence. Okay, with that said, let me give to you a brief overview of the position that I'm going to present to this church. Uh, and then we'll get ready to, to go to communion this morning. The view that I'm going to be presenting here this morning is taken from a professor named John Salehammer. John Salehammer is a, a Semitics uh, expert. He, he has spent his whole life studying ancient languages. In particular, the ancient languages that he has studied are Hebrew and Aramaic and, and the particular languages that the Old Testament was written in. Now, just so you guys don't think I'm just holding here something from some fringe guy way out there, uh, for those of you in this room that know who John Piper is, this is currently the position that John Piper is beginning to hold. Okay? So this isn't just fringe theology. This is becoming mainstream position on Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Here's the big overarching idea that we're going to dig into over the next few weeks. 
You guys ready for this? It's going to be, it's going to be a shocker. It's going to be, some of you guys are going to be like, what? The big idea is this from John Salehammer. First and foremost, Genesis 1.1 is Genesis 1.1. The verse we read is where God creates everything. Heaven, earth, animals, with the exception of people, everything. And he could have done it in a billion, quadrillion years, or he could have done it in one half second. The text doesn't say. The text just says God did it in Genesis 1.1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, all the way through chapter 2, God is preparing a particular land for a particular people that he will be in relationship with. And that particular land is the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That particular land in the rest of the Old Testament becomes the promised land. The promised land goes on later in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, to be the restored heavens and earth. And that's why we're going to trace the whole narrative. That's how we're going to work our way through this whole thing. So Genesis 1.1, just as a pointer, a little trailer for next week, Genesis 1.1 is a very technical little verse, and in it is a particular Hebrew phrase that is called a merism, a merism. Heavens and earth, and I will explain all of this next week, uh, where God has created everything, and then Genesis 1-2 through 2 is God now setting up the introduction to the rest of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis 1-1, God creates everything. Genesis 1-2 through 2, God is now preparing a particular people. Does that sound familiar? For a particular place, that's a particular land. So Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden... And that eventually is going to go on, and that sets up the foundations, that sets up the narrative, that sets up the picture for what will come later in Exodus and Leviticus, where God is still preparing a particular land for a particular people to be in covenant union with them. Adam and Eve failed. Israel failed. Jesus didn't fail. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the new creation. Jesus is the beginning of all things, new and restored. We now are the people of God as we go through the rest of the New Testament to the restored heaven and earth through the resurrection. That's the big, big, huge idea. Now, one final thing that I want to say that we're going to have to really dig into over the next couple weeks, and I'd like you guys to bring notepads and take notes and you can ask questions, is one of Salehammer's contentions is that Genesis 1 in particular has been mistranslated over and over and over for millennia now. In other words... There have been translators and cultures that have come to Genesis 1 and they've said, okay, our current scientific theory of how the world came to be says this. So we need to take what science is saying currently and we need to put it into Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2, okay? Selhammer's contention, and, and this is where I became utterly persuaded, this is why I feel so confident in presenting this view to you guys, Salehammer's view is that we must get back behind the scientific ideas of our modern day, of Greek cosmologies going back a thousand years, and the way that we've translated particular words in Genesis 1-1. We've got to get back to the original Semitic language, get back to what Moses, and remember guys, this is just hard to get our heads around, Three or 4,000 years ago, an ancient Near Eastern Hebrew prophet is writing to a people who are preparing to go in and conquer a land. What was Moses saying to an ancient people? 
And the difficulty in this is we're talking about a dead language and a dead culture. But the reality is when we look at this and in accord with an expert, an expert who says this is what Moses was actually saying, this is what Moses meant, and this is how the people would have read these passages, it begins to make total sense. And here's the great thing about the view I'm going to present to you guys. For those of you in this room that are just young earth creationists and there's no way that that is going to be pushed in any other direction, that's wonderful. Genesis 1-1 and the way that I'm going to present it to you guys leaves plenty of room for that. For those of you in this room that have embraced evolutionary theory, but you still believe in Jesus. Now, I know, I know this is probably going to get a whole lot of emails, and that's okay. And I'll try to answer them humbly and, and respectfully. But this view, this way of presenting Genesis 1, actually leaves room for what we call theistic evolution. That is, scientists and, and, and men and women of God who have come to embrace the theory of evolution as it's currently taught, but they would say it's a particular evolution. It's a God-ordained, God-guided evolution. It's God using processes over billions and millions of years to bring about what we have today. I personally, and I'll just tip my hand for you guys, I land kind of right in the middle of that spectrum. You got young earth creation, spontaneous creation, earth and universe is created with the appearance of age. All the way over to the far left, what we'd call theistic evolution. That whole camp right there, humble theology, we're all family. We don't start throwing rocks at each other. We circle the wagons and we stay together. Theistic evolutionist right here, arm in arm with a young earth creationist, all the way around. We've got the wagon circled. We're all on the same, all on the same team. And for myself, I personally kind of run right there in the middle of the line. And this is why I don't think that the current science is showing that macroevolution actually has occurred. I just don't, I don't see it. And there may be one of you in here that has a little more training, has a little more knowledge that you could sit down with me and walk me through how macroevolution has actually occurred, whether God guided it or not. I just don't see it. So I take a position that runs right in the middle. I think that God did spontaneously create, in particular, humanity out of the dust, But God also, I believe, used processes over a long span of time, according to the current teachings of geology, paleontology, uh, uh, carbon dating. And this is, again, where you could sit down and talk with somebody like Tom Friedel, who is a good friend of mine, treasured member of this church. And the reason I'm pointing him to you or pointing you to him is because he would be able to say, well, here's where Pastor Danny's wrong about carbon dating. And he's a scientist. And he would be able to say, there's some real fallacies with carbon dating. And they're legitimate. They're legitimate. There's some real problems with the fossil record. There's some real problems with the way that geology, current, geological theory currently deals with plate tectonics and the movement of... You guys feeling nerded out yet? Are you guys just feeling like smoked here? This is just too much nerdum. <laughs> It'll get better next week. Stick with me, family. This is important. This is important. This is important. So we're going to in my opinion, be returning to the original words of the original authors. And then finally, this is what we're going to close with this morning to take us. We'll have all that technical stuff set up, and then we're going to get to the waters, the wilderness, and the world to come. Let me set up for you as we go to communion, fourth reason why we're doing this series. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's everything. Out of the waters, and the waters in the Bible are always a a picture of chaos and judgment, 
For the ancient Hebrews, the waters, you know, we like to go swimming in the ocean. The ocean was a place of depth and fear and darkness and scariness. So God hovers over that chaos in Genesis 1 by his spirit. He pulls out of the waters. God pulls out of the chaos land. He's preparing a place for his people that is calm, that is controlled, that is ordered. A particular people that he's going to love. Now, in that land, that word there that that is translated without form and void, we'll talk about that in depth, but it's better translated, it was desolate and wild. God creates a wilderness for his people to dwell in. And that wilderness is going to be tended by them. It's going to be cultivated by them to bring about the fruits that God wants. So the waters in the wilderness are from the very beginning. And as you trace those themes from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the book of Revelation, you have this ongoing story that goes creation, fall, or failure. God seeks to establish, bring out of the chaos and out of the waters. What happens in Exodus? God splits the waters as his people, his chosen people, are now prepared to go into a particular land. God splits the waters just as he did in Genesis 1, but he sends them into a wilderness, a place where they're going to be prepared. From there, if we jump all the way to the New Testament, what happens with Jesus? The very first thing that we see happening with Jesus, the new creation, is God hovering over the waters of his baptism. And he splits the waters as he comes out. He is now the new land. He is now the new promised place. He is now the new promised people. And where is Jesus at in the beginning of the Gospels? He's in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness. And what happens as we go through the New Testament and we get to the very end after the resurrection is we land in an entirely restored world where there's what? The book of Revelation tells us that in the new heavens and new earth, this is that symbolic imagery of the ancient Hebrews, there's no more sea. Why? There's no more chaos. There's no more judgment. And the wilderness now has become this city garden. And God's particular people, from Adam and Eve, to Israel, to Jesus, to us, are resurrected. And there, in that new world, in the world to come, we will dwell eternally with each other and with God. The wilderness of this world will have prepared our hearts. And so over the coming weeks, we'll be talking about the themes of judgment, as we'll look at Noah's flood, when God uses water to wipe everything out. Deliverance, as we look at Exodus, going through the waters, coming out of Genesis 1-1, through Exodus. We're going to be talking about the themes of spiritual formation because the wilderness, and I think this is where you guys are really going to be able to walk away from this series going, wow, that was tremendously helpful. Because we're going to talk about how God, through the wilderness, beginning with Adam and Eve, all the way through to the end, uses the wilderness to cultivate our own hearts. Wherein now the waters, the living water of the Holy Spirit is to be free-flowing out of us. This is where we're going. I hope you guys are as nerded out about this as I am. We're going to take communion this morning. Will, if you'd come on up. And to set up communion, let me share with you the gospel. We take communion here at Taproot Church every Sunday. 